So without any further introduction, listen closely. Here we go. Let's read Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray that you would help us, give us your spirit, fill us with your spirit, so that our eyes might be opened to your word and the truth contained therein. Lord, I pray that we would encounter Christ today, that we would understand the book of Ephesians from a high level, but not just understand so that that we can be better educated. Lord, I pray that, 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 that theology would turn into doxology, that right belief would turn into right living, that the indicatives in here would inform the imperatives of our lives and turn into practical behavior and speech and thought. Lord, I pray that you would transform us as individuals and as a church as we encounter your word. Let the word spring off the pages into our hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. There's an early 20th century Bible teacher and author named Arthur Wallace. And he said in the 1950s, if you would do the best with your life, find out what God is doing in your generation and throw yourself wholly into it. This quote has stuck with me for the last couple months as we've been preparing for this series. Because it makes sense, doesn't it? If there is a sovereign God and he is there and he has authored all of history and he is good and he is moving history toward good and redemptive purposes, don't you want to know what he's doing in your generation? And if you find out what he's doing now, Wouldn't you want to throw everything that you are into that? Why wouldn't you? Now, we know from our previous sermon series in Habakkuk that God is always active in all things at all times because he is the sovereign ruler over all creation. But just like any good story, there are many different characters that comprise the story, but there's usually one main character, through whom the author is advancing his story toward its happy ending, right? So what is that main character in our generation through which God is advancing his grand story? Is he accomplishing his purposes? Is he advancing his grand story through nonprofit ministries and parachurch ministries? 
Or is he advancing his purposes through human government? Should we align ourselves, should we throw ourselves wholly into legislation and and governance? Is that what we should invest ourselves into first and foremost? Or, Or maybe, is what God is doing in the world today is it identified by the social consensus? By, by what everybody everywhere and the majority of that everybody everywhere says is good and right? Is that what God is doing? Whatever the, the majority says that, that God is doing or that the right thing to do is, is that what you should throw yourself into? Maybe is what God, doing, is what God is doing in the world today your own personal consensus? Is that what you should be throwing yourself wholly into? Whatever you think is good and right and whatever is going to advance your grand purpose for your life forward, is that what you should throw yourself into? Maybe, maybe it's activism. Maybe it's joining together with a bunch of people who are passionate about a particular cause or a particular outcome and, and, and joining your voice together with them and throwing your, yourself wholly into an activistic purpose. Is that what God is doing in the world today? Is he in the midst of, of activists primarily? Or, or maybe, maybe what God is doing in the world today, something that he's doing through one class of people or one ethnicity of people. Is that where God is active? Join yourself with the right people. Or, or maybe, maybe it's with, with the wealthy. God is at work amongst those who who have power and wealth, and that is what I want to throw myself into and strive toward, because that is where I'm going, to, I'm going to get God's blessing, and I'm going to see his purposes fulfilled. Now, some of those are obviously wrong, but all of those are things that people in our world today would believe, yeah, this is what is worth throwing my whole life into. And if what God is doing in our generation is any of the above, then by all means, throw yourself into it. But Paul's letter to Ephesians, to the Ephesian church, tells us that it is none of those. It is none of those. This letter does tell us what God is doing in our generation, and it does tell us what we should throw our lives wholly into. In fact, from the get-go, in chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, it should be on the same page as the passage we just read. Scroll down to to verse 9. Paul tells us what God's purpose in this generation is. In fact, he tells us what, what God's purpose is in all of history. His grand purpose in all of history. Look at verse 9. God made known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. So do you hear, the, do you hear all of that plan and purpose language? 
It's God's plan. It's his purpose. It's his will in the fullness of time in Christ, his son. What is God doing in history? To unite all things in him. That's God's grand purpose in history. To unite all things in his son. Things in heaven and things on God's grand purpose in history, to give his son, Jesus Christ, to unite all things to him. To unite all things in him and under him. Things in heaven and things on earth. Nothing is outside of that. God's plan has always been to have a a huge family of restored human beings who are unified in Jesus, the Messiah. And listen, where is this purpose being fulfilled? Where is this purpose being fulfilled? In the church. That grand purpose for all of history, of the the uniting of all things in Christ, is being fulfilled in the church. The message of Ephesians right here. The church is where God's grand purpose for all of history is being fulfilled. The church is what God is doing in the world. The church is what God is doing in the world. This local church, this small, unassuming, unimpressive local church is what God is doing church is what you should throw yourself fully into. This is the message of Ephesians. And our our super brief passage today gives us a sneak peek into that message. In verse 2, with the words, grace and peace. Somebody walked in today and greeted somebody else by saying, grace and peace. And I said, ah, yes, grace and peace. That's a sneak peek full of Ephesians. But before we get there, let's look at verse 1 and get a snapshot of Ephesians from a very high level. Verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Ephesians was written by the apostle Paul. And, And note, Paul says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. He's saying, hey, listen. I'm an apostle, but I didn't make myself an apostle. Christ Jesus did. On the road to Damascus, he had an encounter with the risen Christ where where Jesus literally called him into his apostleship. And he said this came by the will of God. In other words, hey, listen, this letter even, this was not my idea. This is God's. So listen up. Listen up. This comes not with my authority but with God's. Paul wrote the majority of the the letters in the New Testament, and he wrote this one along with a couple others from a prison, from a prison cell in Rome in the early 7th century AD. Now, who he's writing to? He's writing to believers. He says, 
the saints, which in the Old Testament, under the Old Covenant, saints was a term used only to, to describe Israelites, Jews. Ephesus was a Gentile city. Very few Jews living in Ephesus. So the fact that he even starts by saying, to the saints in Ephesus, is provocative in that time. And Ephesus, man oh man, Ephesus actually resonates a whole lot with where we're at right now. It was a major metropolitan city. It was a huge port city. So a a, a city of of tremendous commerce. A city that that, uh, majored on entertainment. They had a theater that sat 20,000 people. It was big into the occult and practices of magic. People worshipped all kinds of deities. The, 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 one of the seven ancient wonders of the world, the Temple of Artemis, or the Temple of Diana, was in the city of Ephesus. And it was considered to be one of the greatest worship centers in all the earth. But along with the worship of Artemis was the worship of 50 other different deities who had their own smaller places of worship within this city. So this city <laughs> was, was a city that majored on entertainment, on commerce, on wealth, on business, and with everybody believing whatever they wanted. Ephesus was the Southern California of Asia Minor. It it resonates with where we live today. It's a very similar culture then is where we're living right now. So why was Paul writing to these churches? Well, one of the things that makes... Ephesians really unique is that it has no occasion, which means that Paul wasn't writing to address a a particular issue in the church like he does in all of his other letters. He's not writing to correct some sort of error. He's not writing to resolve some sort of conflict. He's not even writing to encourage during some sort of particular trial. He seems to just be writing to remind them or instruct them generally about some very important things. Which brings us back to what this book is about, which also brings us to verse 2. Read verse 2 with me again. Grace to you and peace from God, God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Interestingly, Paul uses this salutation, this greeting, in seven of his letters. It's kind of his his way of saying hello, but it's not merely. It's not merely him just waving his hand and saying, hey guys, he's saying something through this. It's what he wishes upon his readers before they read any further. He's saying, may grace be given to you. May you receive peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is big. And it carries a special significance in Ephesians. Why? Because it's a preview of the whole purpose of this whole book. And, don't miss this, it's a restatement of God's purposes in the world. Remember God's grand purpose for all of history? to give his son, Jesus Christ, to unite all things in him? Think about that. To give his son, Jesus Christ, in order that all things might be united 
in him. In other words, to give grace in order to achieve peace. God's grand purpose, restated, could be to give grace in order to achieve peace. The gift of grace has made peace and is making peace. This is what God is doing in the world, making peace through grace. So to restate Ephesians 1, 9 through 10, by grace, God is making peace. So grace and peace are going to form the, the structure for the remainder of this message today. And this is, this is big stuff. We're, we're not going to be able to get too, too deep down into the details because we're going to rely on the rest of the book to do that. So forgive me if, if I don't, don't say something that you think I should say in this or explain something that you think I should explain. Don't worry, we're going to get there. This is a high-level introduction, but we're coming across some of the most central themes of the entire Bible, much less Ephesians, right here. So the two points for the sermon today is, one, the gift itself, grace. The gift itself, grace. Two, the result of the gift. The result of the gift. Start with point one, the gift itself, grace. And this is where I feel completely uh, incompetent to, in just a few minutes, address the topic of something as big as grace. The, the, the word grace, it appears 95 times in Paul's letters. What is grace? Particularly, Specifically, what is the grace of God? Well, in short, it is the greatest gift that you or I or anyone could ever possibly receive. There is no greater gift than the gift of grace. Many have defined it as, as unearned favor from God, or unearned kindness, or unearned goodwill, or unearned approval from God. So king off the idea of, of, of unearned, let's ask the question, how much favor have you or I earned from God? None. None. Absolutely zero. Because God had created us to love and to follow him. But in chapter 2, turn to chapter 2. If it's, if it's just on the next page over, look over to the next page. If you have to turn, turn there. Look at chapter 2, verses 1 through 3 of this book. Describe, describe our state before grace came, before we received grace. Because of something called sin, which is rebellion against what God created us for, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Paul says that we all walked not according to God's purpose, but we walked in sin. 
and that we followed not God, but that we followed the course of this world. And by following the course of this world, we unknowingly were following the prince of the power of the air, who is Satan. And what state did that leave us in? Left us in the state of being children of wrath, which means we did not deserve favor, but instead we deserve God's wrath, his righteous and just wrath. But not only that, look down to verse 12. Verse 12 says that we were alienated from God. Strangers to his promises and hopeless. Verse 14 hints that that because of sin, we were hostile to one another. And, and worst of all, verse 1 of chapter 2 says that we were spiritually dead. Undeserving and unable. was the situation we were in prior to grace. And if you've not received grace, and if you're asking yourself, how do I receive grace? Know that that is the state that you're in now. But look at verse 4 of chapter 2. But God. <laughs> but God. Not but you. Not but the government. Not but, not but some other person. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. By the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross, <laughs> by belief in him, you can be saved not by anything that you do. You don't have to do anything. In fact, verse 8 down here in chapter 2 says that, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this, even this, is not your own doing. It's the gift of God. Not a result of work so that no one may boast. By simply looking to Christ and saying, I need you to save me, you will be saved. Repenting of your sins, saying, my my following of the course of this world has been wrong. I turn away from it and I turn toward you. Be saved. And that is, that is grace. And it's, this is where I feel so insufficient because, well, well, we'll be talking about this for the rest of the sermon series, so we have, to, we have to move on. But suffice it to say that grace is the most amazing thing that you could have ever received from God. And the most unexpected thing. Because author Jerry Bridges helpfully clarifies that not only is God's favor undeserved, but because of the depth of our rebellion and sin, it's ill-deserved. God's grace, or, or, or grace is, is God's ill-deserved favor toward us. We weren't just neutral before God. We, we deserve the opposite of grace, yet he gave us grace through his son, Jesus Christ. So profound is the grace that comes through Jesus that, that Paul uses grace as a synonym for Jesus in Titus 2.11. And, and you might think when I said earlier that grace is the greatest gift you could ever receive, you might have thought, well, that's not true. Jesus is the greatest gift you could ever receive. You're right. Right. 
Paul says in Titus 2.11, he says, for the grace of God appeared bringing salvation for all people. Well, grace is a concept. It's an idea. It doesn't take material form. How did grace appear? Through the birth of Jesus. On that night, grace appeared. Bringing salvation for all people. For all who would come to him. Receive grace. Jesus is the embodiment of grace. And the story of the gospel is the story of grace. Now, before we move on into the second point, I want to I want to jump back into a quick overview of Ephesians here. This book is one of the one of the cleanest, most simply laid out books in the Bible. I mentioned that at the at the front half, but listen to this. It's separated into two parts, chapters one through three and chapters 4 through 6. Chapters 1 through 3 is the story of the gospel. Chapters 4 through 6 is how that story plays out in the life of the church. Chapters 1 through 3 is filled with indicatives. Chapters 4 through 6 filled with imperatives. Indicatives are principles, statements of fact. Imperatives are commands and instructions. Chapters One through three are principles, and four through six are practice. And this division is very important. In fact, this is how Paul structures almost every one of his letters. In the first half, Paul aims to remind them of the story of the gospel. His aim is to remind them of the grace of God through Jesus Christ and the beauty of the peace that it's achieved. We're going to get to peace in just a minute, but listen to this. Another way of describing 1 through 3 and 4 through 6 is doctrine and application. Doctrine is a, it's a fancy word for teachings or beliefs. Okay? Listen, maybe you have never been a big doctrine or theology person. Let me make a provocative claim about your, your life. You are a big doctrine person. You are a big doctrine person, whether you know it or not, because everybody believes something about everything. Pick an arena of your life, you believe something about it. Anything marriage, school, career, the origin of the universe the value of an education, the role of money in your life, friends, your family. You believe something about all of it. And, and, and imperatives, practice, is always followed by belief. Always. Doctrine follows. Doctrine is followed by application. Why? Because behavior always follows belief. So you behave, you act, you speak, you think the way that you do because of what you believe. And Paul knows this intuitively about the human condition, which is why he starts off every letter with doctrine, with indicative. Because he says, if you are going to behave in a way that honors God, you must first believe what is true. 
and your life is always being flooded with different suggestions of what you should believe. So let me encourage you. Here's a practical point of application. Read theological books. Pay closer attention to sermons. Intentionally approach your time of Bible reading asking the Lord to teach you and to reteach you the doctrinal truths that will inform right practice. Because if you try, if you try to just live a better Christian life without having any doctrinal grounding, it's going to be a pretty shallow foundation. Learn from how Paul writes his letters to the churches that he writes to and how God inspired Paul to write these letters. This is God instructing you. Ensure that the imperatives of your life are preceded by indicatives. That the practice of your life is preceded by principles of truth. That's what Paul is aiming at in this letter, to teach you the doctrinal story of the gospel, to teach you the doctrinal story of grace, and to teach you that grace has achieved God's grand purpose for all of history, which is peace. Brings us to the second point, the result of the gift, peace. Paul says, grace to you and peace from God and Father, from, from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. The prophet Ezekiel in the Old Testament, in Ezekiel chapter 36, he prophesied of the new covenant, and he called it the new covenant of what? Isaiah foretold of the coming Messiah in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. And he said this Messiah will be called Prince of Peace. When the angels, when the angels celebrated the coming of that Messiah in the form of Jesus as a baby born to Mary, they declared his coming and they said, Peace on earth among those with whom God is well pleased. Peace on earth among those who have received God's favor. Peace on earth to those who have received grace. See that correlation there? Those who have received grace will experience peace in a way that has never yet before in history and experienced. Well, go back to chapter 2, or forward to chapter 2, wherever you are in Ephesians right now. We're all over the place. Remember in verse 12, Paul says that because of sin, we were alienated, we were strangers, we were cut off, we were hostile to one another. Look at verse 13. We're going to read all the way to, to verse 17, so stick with me here. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one. When he says both, he's talking about Jews and Gentiles who formerly were divided. There was no peace. He has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility, that hostility that we held toward one another. He's broken that down by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one, one new man 
in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God, to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing, not just eliminating, but killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. You get that? Jesus came and through his finished work on the cross, he achieved peace between you and those you were alienated from. Anyone who is united in Christ by faith, you are now united to. Whatever differences you might have with that person, you are united. Not just united sort of distantly as an acquaintance. You've been made one. And you see that word one all over in Ephesians. All over. You're going to hear it over and over again. But not only have you been made one with one another, you've been reconciled to God. You are no longer a child of wrath. You are now a son or daughter. A fellow heir of the grace of life with Jesus Christ. He has made peace in every way that matters. Grace came and made peace, reconciled to God and reconciled to one another. God's grand purpose for history accomplished. Commentator Max Turner says, all this could be called cosmic peace. Ephesians teaches that this purpose has begun in Christ and will be consummated in him. In other words, it's going to keep getting better until that one day when it's perfect after he comes back. This leads to an awesome, majestic vision of the church. Look down in verse 19. Continue on in chapter 2 here. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens. Hallelujah. But you are fellow citizens with saints and members of the household of God. What is the household of God? It's the church. Look at, look at chapter 1, verse 22, back just a few verses. And God put all things under Jesus' feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. Where have all things been united in him? In the church. Max Turner continues, he says, to say that this peace has begun in him is also to say that peace is experienced by those united with him, namely by believers. This, this is an awesome vision of the church. What is God doing in the world? Extending grace through his son to make peace between God and humanity. That's what God is doing in the world. And it results in the church and it continues through the church. That's what Paul is saying in the book of Ephesians. God's great purposes have been accomplished and fulfilled in the church and are continuing through the church. Chapter 2, verse 22, just a quick survey. Describes the dwelling place of God. What is the dwelling place of God? It's the church under the new covenant. 
that the believers were being built together into that dwelling. In chapter 3, verses 6 through 10, it, it describes uh, where God's purpose of cosmic peace is being put on display to the world. Where is that? It's the church. In chapter 3, verse 9, Paul describes a mystery of God that's been hidden for ages, but now revealed. How has it been revealed? What is the mystery? It's the church. Chapter 3, verse 21, Paul prays that the glory of God would be revealed and shown through one particular group of people. It's the church. Friends, there is a peace that exists and should exist within the church that is like nowhere else in the entire world. Because nowhere else has the hostility between God and man and the hostility between, between different races and backgrounds and ethnicities and experiences and socioeconomic backgrounds and wealth levels and whatever it is, nowhere else has that hostility been broken down and united in such one central figure as Jesus Christ. There's a unity in the midst of diversity like nowhere else. A breaking down of barriers like nowhere else. An equality, a biblically defined equality like nowhere else. Author David Mathis says, quite simply, listen to this, quite simply, there is no other institution among humans like the church. No other group, no other body, no other coming together in all of creation is more significant than the local church. What this is, not just on Sunday when we gather, but what we are together, It's the hope of the world. This peace that results from grace will extend an offer of grace and peace to a chaotic, divided, confused, dead, hostile world. Another author says very well that Jesus is the hope of the world and the local church is the vehicle of expressing that hope to the world. The world is watching the church. They're watching to see if that's actually happening in local churches. And God himself expects the church to live out the peace that he's achieved through his son, which is why then Paul writes chapters four through six. He says, this isn't just an indicative to tell you about who you are. He says, now live it. This should take shape among you, and I want to help you to know what this shape looks like. And so he says in chapter 4, verse 3, switch over there. He says, be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And then he says in verse 4, why, why be eager? That word literally means fight for unity. Why be eager? Verse 4, because there is one body. You are one body, and you are filled by one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of us all. In other words, 
Be eager for unity because you are unified. Because you are one. Don't seek to divide what God has brought together. Fight for unity in the church. And he says later in chapter 4 that you have become one humanity. And if you've become one humanity, don't put on the old humanity. That makes no sense. Don't put on the old, hostile, divided, alienated person you once were. Fight to put on the new human that you've become. And then he says in chapters 5 through 6, he instructs us what that unity looks like, what that peace looks like in the institution of marriage. And mind you, marriage is a human relationship where two people have become what? One. Not just one, but one flesh. Which is a parable of Jesus and his love for the church. We'll learn more about that later. I'm going to have to restrain myself here. And then what that piece looks like in, in parenting. Parents, you with your kids. How to maintain that peace. And then what that piece looks like with slaves and masters of the day. Or or bosses and employees, or those subject to authority and those in authority. And then he finishes in chapter 6 by, by saying, but there will be threats to your peace and unity. And it will not be some mere threat. We're talking about spiritual warfare. We're talking about opposition from a realm outside your physical material experience. So put on the whole armor of God and protect this peace. Because this peace that you have and where it comes from is the hope of the world. Are you ready <laughs> to get into the book of Ephesians? This is... I can't wait. Clinton Arnold, at the, at the very beginning, I, I mentioned that he says that this letter summarizes what it means to be a Christian better than any other book of the Bible. He continues that quote. He says, it clarifies the heart of the Christian faith. It sets forth God's overall plan for the church, and it draws out the implications of what it means to live as a Christian. Invest in this book. So buckle up, friends. We are in for an extraordinary ride in Ephesians. But before we close this week's sermon, let me, let me ask one question with, with a few different subheadings. So take notes. One question. How do you see the church? How do you see the church? And be, be honest with, with your answer here. No need to, to put on airs. Three, three different ways that you might see the church. First, do you see it as the hope of the world? And I ask that believing that the majority of you in here do. <laughs> you are by and large a people who have thrown yourselves wholly into the local church. Knowing that this is what the gates of hell won't prevail against knowing that this is what will last until the return of Christ. This is what is going toward the return of Christ. And this, this is the only institution that offers real and lasting hope and where you can find genuine peace. And maybe, maybe you look to somewhere else 
as the place that's the real hope of the world. Maybe that list at the very beginning of government, nonprofits, activism, whatever it might be. Is there something in you that, that thinks, yeah, but they're, they're really doing good work. They're really offering. If that's you, let's, let's talk about this. And, and again, open up your eyes and ears to the rest of the book of Ephesians because there's a lot to learn here. So first question, do you see the church as the hope of the world? And gosh, I see so much, so many evidences of grace in this church. Second, do you see our little church as too ordinary to be the hope of the world? You might go, yeah, sure, I believe that in principle on the large scale, but this little church, you kidding me? It's by design. It's by design that the church looks ordinary because the church isn't about the church at the end of the day. The church is not what makes itself the hope of the world. It's Jesus. It's about the magnificence of its Savior. The church is what God is going, what he's doing in the world because it's the one institution with Jesus at its head. That's why we believe this. Learn to be amazed by the Savior of the church and the grace and the peace that he's given. And then you'll be amazed by what he's created in the church and what he's doing in the church. It's not about the impressiveness of the church. In fact, we are quite okay with being ordinary so long as we point to a magnificent Savior. Thirdly and finally, do you very honestly see the church as too weak, too hypocritical, too sinful to be the hope of the world? And I'm aware there, there very well may be some in here for whom that's the answer, and, that, and that's okay. Again, let's dig into Ephesians. But three, three simple offers here to consider. One, Jesus is the perfect model. The church is the work in progress, striving toward that perfect model. Two, pay attention to and take on Paul's optimism for the local church. In chapters one, two, three, he writes two prayers. The first prayer in chapter one, he writes, he prays that God would give the church in Ephesus the strength to be the church. And then in chapter three, he prays that the church in Ephesus would have the ability to comprehend what is the height and depth and breadth of the love of Jesus Christ. He knows there's growth that needs to happen in the church. But he has a hope that God is going to Create that growth. Is that where your hope is? You hope and believe that the Lord is growing this church, not in numbers, but in maturity to the image of Jesus Christ, who is its head. Thirdly and finally, you have to see your place in the church. If you're a Christian, you cannot criticize the church from the outside. You are a part of it. And that is very important. You are part of that one. So for a local church member to, to criticize the church as though it's something that needs to be fixed outside of my involvement is like a husband or a wife criticizing their own marriage expecting somebody else to fix it. No, this is you. This is you. So, so, if you see the church not measuring up to what you see in Ephesians, it's either because people aren't rightly believing in the indicatives of chapters 1 through 3, or because they're not carrying out the imperatives of 4 through 6. 
And you're a part of that, people. So there's either room for you to grow in your beliefs and practice, or you have a responsibility to help with grace and peace and unity your brothers and sisters, or a combination of both of them. We are together, the church, each working side by side, trusting side by side, believing side by side, being unified side by side as we strive toward him who is the head, who is Jesus Christ. Friends, the church is what God is doing in the world. May he give us grace and peace. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, Lord, you've given grace and peace, and we pray for, for more grace and peace. Would you, would you give us grace to comprehend the love of Jesus Christ? Would you give us grace to comprehend what you inspired Paul to write in the book of Ephesians? And would you produce peace in our church to the glory of your name?